Hey everybody, welcome to episode 43 of Literary Disco, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Today's episode in two parts will begin with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I are forced to pick a book at random from our bookshelves and defend our ownership of it. And then we will discuss Ben Fountain's 2012 novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Very early morning. So if anyone's ever wondered what it would be like to wake up next to Ryder Strong, this is what it would sound like. I've been up for like four hours at this point. If yeah, anyone's Todd- ever wondered what it would be like to wake up next to Todd Goldberg... This is what it would sound like. And the entire uh, Venn diagram of that lives in my house already and is my wife. <laughs> and your dogs. And my dogs. Both of you guys have a little bedhead going on. And I'm wearing a headband to cover my bedhead. So. But you make that shit work. If, if I wore a headband, well, I'd look like I was in Color Me Bad is, is how I'd look. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be the frumpy Jew in Color Me Bad, like that they cut out of the band early on. So what have our fans given us for numbers, Julia? What, what do they want us to do? And remind okay. the listeners how this game is played. <laughs> All right. Because Ryder and I don't remember. So Todd, but I remember perfectly you. well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the way that this game works is um, we have not prepared a revisit of any kind. So we get three numbers from you guys. Um, The first is what corner of a bookshelf we're going to start at. The second is uh, we're going to either count down or up a number of bookshelves um, based on what corner we start at. And the third number is how many books we count over to get us to an exact book. Okay, so are you guys ready? Yes. All right, our first number from Amanda at... Amanda K. Jane. Thanks, Amanda. Our number is two. Two. Uh, so we're going to start in the top right corner of our any bookshelf in your house. Okay. And then we're going to count down from Justin Jacobs uh, seven shelves. Okay. If you got to have a pretty high bookshelf for that one. And then you're going to count 23 books over from right to left. All right? All two, right. seven, 23. You guys ready? Go. Break. Good. I'll go first. Uh, Yeah, mine is not super interesting because I can't remember all that much about this book except that I really liked it. It's a novel by Marilyn Robinson called Housekeeping. Oh, I love that book. Oh, it is a fantastic novel. It's a good book, right? But if I, okay, so if it's basically, it's a story, it's told from a teenage girl, right? And she's Mm -hmm. being raised by her, her sister and her being raised by their aunt. And their aunt is like this kind of eccentric woman who doesn't keep a good house in the sense that their house is a disaster and like basically the ants kind of going crazy right right and they're being raised by her and then what happens i can't remember the plot of this except uh, i just remember kind of feeling like by the end i was so into the characters but then by the end i felt like it kind of was a cop-out do you guys have any idea uh, what happens at the end i don't remember <laughs> i remember I, I loving don't... the book I'm now looking back up to remind myself of everything that happens. All right, uh, so it's I, in, I know, alert. It's, it's, if anybody wants to read this book, uh, you know, skip the next couple minutes. But they run away. Like, right. that's all that happens is the, the aunt and the other sister run away, and our narrator's left by herself in the town because she didn't follow them or whatever. But I just remember kind of being like, okay, so here's this book that brings up all these great issues of... Um, 
like what it means to be a woman and to be a good housekeeper and if i remember there's a lot of tension between the town and this aunt and this aunt is like this eccentric figure in the town and she's everyone's concerned about her raising these girls and there's this tension this you know between them the three women and the town and then at the end you know when they're going to take the kids away from the aunt or whatever i forget what exactly happens plot was the aunt just runs away with one of the the daughters and the other daughters the narrator stays behind and i remember kind of feeling like that's kind of a cop-out like why don't like they're just gonna run away like how is that any different than what's been happening this woman's whole life like why aren't they staying and confronting some of these issues as i remember i read this book in class that taught me all about the great um female writers of like the 1980s so i read it in college it was a a lot about um sort of uh, the onset of feminism in the Midwest in the 1950s. Because yes. the aunt is very independent and she doesn't need a man and the town and I think the school teachers get involved somehow. They're sort of trying to take the, the girls away from this aunt, if I remember. There's some threat from the town. That's and Anyway, I just remember, you know, because I, I, I read it in a college class too, and I remember it was like, yeah, it was, you know, we were all talking about how this book was a great sort of stance against... Um, you know, a culture, a patriarchal culture. And yet, I remember being incredibly disappointed by the fact that they just run away at the end. Like, we're not going to stay and actually solve any of these problems or confront any of these townspeople. We're just going to run away and become hobos. Like, they're literally train hopping at the end, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, there's nothing more liberating than taking back your freedom from a small town that's constantly trying to oppress you, you know? Right. So I, I don't actually, as you guys are talking about it, if, if someone was to stop me on the street and say, Julia, how do you feel about the book Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson? I would be like, amazing, one of the best books I ever read. And I don't remember anything that you guys are talking about. That's what I'm because saying. Yeah. When I re- we all feel that way. I think that's because it's really well written, but I don't know if it has a great story. Her writing is unbelievable. But, I mean, I guess as a reading experience, to me, that doesn't matter so much. I, I more clearly remember Gilead. Yes. Um, but also Gilead was recently. Yeah. Yeah, I well, I, I read them back to back. I read Gilead first and then I needed more Marilyn Robinson very desperately and I read Housekeeping. Um, but her writing is worth reading anything and now I want to reread that. Um, I picked up... This is uh, this is hilarious. I've never picked out something like this during a roulette before. I picked out the fourth book in the Game of Thrones series. <laughs> um, which, if you've read Game of Thrones like Ryder and I have, Todd, you haven't, right? You haven't touched no. it, right? So, um, it is the... F- Alright, I'll set it up for you guys, if you don't know what happened. This decision that George R. R. Martin made. So, first book, huge hit. Second book, fine. Third book, really good. And then he's, like, created so many characters and worlds at this point when he was writing these books that he was like, all right, this is just too much. He started to write the next book, and there was just so many different plot lines and countries and conflicts that he literally took all the characters that everyone likes and delayed them until the next book. So he pulled out um, all the characters that are boring, that were brand new, or that no one liked, and created this book, A Feast for Crows. And I uh, skipped it. Do you I made skip it the like, whole book? Yeah. 
I just wow. jumped right to the fifth one. I was listening to the audiobooks and I was like halfway through the fourth and I'm like, I don't care about anybody. <laughs> I just hate them. So I, just, I asked my brother because he was ahead of me. I was like, what happens? And he told me. I was like, great. Okay. Now I just go right to the fifth one. <laughs> it, so. so, and then of course people had to wait between this one and the most recent one forever, right? Something like seven or eight years. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I, Greg, um, my significant other calls this book a feast of crow because it's just so crappy, but I diligently read every word. It's a thousand pages long. Oh my God. Um, when I look back on some of the things that happened, I'm glad that I experienced them, but I was just so dedicated to the series that I, I wanted to get there before. Um, a Dance with Dragons came out and it hadn't come out yet. So that was also, what are they going to do about the HBO show? Like, are they going to introduce all the characters from the fourth book or are they just gonna well stick with the ones they've got some of them are so the main characters in the fourth book for i'm sure we have tons of listeners who watch the um, hbo show a lot of the main characters are ones that the hbo show has made better or more interesting so um well, that's true actually so sansa cersei brienne of tarth and then they introduce um these other a bunch of other people, but what I'm sure what they're going to do is reintegrate the plot lines because they overlap at the same time. And then, you know, we'll see some Cersei scenes, but we'll see some Jon Snow scenes. I'm not, uh, the show has done a great job of fixing some of the issues with the books. It's really turned me around to the whole uh, does, HBO show of giant novels thing. Does he, does he work on the show? Like I know, I know that he's not the show runner, but is he one of the producers on the show at least? Yeah, and I think he wrote... I know he's written, I think, one episode per season. Um, so he wrote... Um, I believe he wrote the Red Wedding episode, which is the most famous event in all of the books. And I think he wrote the Battle of the Blackwater episode, too. I can't believe I know all this information. Sorry, everyone. Uh, but I know Ryder knows it, too, so... <laughs> yeah, but it's so funny, because I, I don't know how to spell anything, because I've only listened to the audiobooks. So when I actually see the names Daenerys written out, I'm like, Jesus, there's a Y in there? That looks horrible. <laughs> what? Like, you know how fantasy books always have the worst names? It's just, you know... What is and that? sci-fi books... What? Like, well, it's just a tradition. It's just... But the extra weird spelling... But why is it always a Y or a K? Like, in fact... We're all going to read a giant fantasy novel, and when uh, we selected it, I had never heard of this book, and I jokingly said to Ryder, oh, I wonder how many characters have a K name in it, and I went and looked, and there was like an entire race of people with a bizarre <laughs> K name in them. It, yeah, it's... I just opened it up, because it's right here. Kelsier is the first name. <laughs> <laughs> Yaden. Yaden is another is one. Is that with a Y? Ye two yeah. Ys, actually? Y-E-D-E-N. Oh. Is there, is, there, is there no one in Fantasy World named Eric or, or Jeff? Well, Game of Thrones has a character named Jamie, um, which is, is great, but it, it just, like, can't help itself. It, it's not J-A-M-I-E. It's J-A-I-M-E. And you're like, Are you serious? It. Yeah. Jamie Lannister spells his name that way? Yeah. That's uh, horrible. But, you know, whatever. At least at least they made a try with Jamie. Um <laughs> Anyway, can I ask another question about, about fantasy for just a moment? And, and perhaps you guys can elucidate this fact for me and my life will be solved. Why, why do fantasy novels and sci-fi novels frequently seem to take place in England in, on another planet? Why, why do they use that, that, um, that sort of 
pastoral England setting as yeah, and English accents. But why? It's a yeah. tradition of you know it comes from okay. So you had like the uh, Arthurian legends, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have those sort of oral folklore traditions that. I just think like the romance of that is still in our cultural subconscious. Like we we're still feeling the effects. Like if we you know because Tolkien did that consciously, right? Like Tolkien went back into Anglo-Saxon folklore and tradition in order to create the Lord of the Rings world. So it just makes sense that it kind of looks and feels and sounds like rural England to us because he was reaching back into the stories from those places, and you know making up languages with uh with an ear to those old ancient languages and i think now it's just all codified like if you were to see if you were to see a a band of elves hiking through a redwood forest it wouldn't make sense right because like like we associate a redwood forest with america and the west which is a different mythic visual tradition than like a, a a wood on a round little hill with sheep on it you know like that just sounds like oh a hobbit lives there although wait hold on endor endor they used they used a redwood forest so and that, i gotta yeah i think redwood forest isn't the best example i can totally see elves <laughs> redwood forest but um i have to say though game of thrones part of the reason i like it and i don't love a lot of fantasy is that it it starts in that medieval england france scotland western europe thing and then it expands very broadly to a clear equivalent of Mongolia, the Middle East, Spain, mm-hmm. Portugal, mm. those are all places that are clearly being used as inspiration. And, the, and then there's all the attendant problems of like, how do you travel there? How long does it take to get there? We can't speak the right. same languages, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're looking to get beyond England, but you still want to read fantasy, I think Game of Thrones is actually a pretty good way to go. Oh, well, I finally saw the Hobbit movie, by the way. And as you guys might recall, I had a little bit of a problem with the audiobook because of the songs um, and the plot and the story. <laughs> and so I got through about 40 minutes of the Hobbit movie, and I was like, they're, uh, no, they, they've sung three times. I'm going to stick my fucking head in an oven. Oh, yeah, and they're still having dinner yeah, 40 minutes. It, it's an hour and in, even, and they're... they're, they're <laughs> the, the, the cleaning dishes... No. Hysterical <laughs> cleaning dishes montage that takes twenty and, minutes. An hour in, and they haven't even left his goddamn house. Oh, are they really going to make all those Hobbit movies? Is that yeah, really going to? Yeah, the second oh, one's man. about to come out. Good God, that that was as torturous as listening to the audiobook. Focus, so <laughs> here's hoping. So we're gonna go see it. They're gonna take more of our money. Well, I probably right. won't see it in the theater because I. I I can't handle the songs. I just cannot handle the songs. It's too much. You like I have I'm, no sense of whimsy. I will suspend sir. disbelief for orcs and fighting hobbits and all that stuff. Cool. I'm with it. But when they break into spontaneous, <laughs> like, school of fame style song and dance routines, I'm out. I'm fucking out. Uh, they should just embrace it. Hobbit the musical. <laughs> It was! It was basically a musical, for God's sake. Uh, the only thing missing was them dancing in the streets of New York and, you know, trying to get into a Bob Fosse play. And Hobbits take Manhattan. <laughs> Hobbits take Manhattan. <laughs> the only jobs they can get are in show business. So Vince they're, they're Vaughn. Broadway. <laughs> Hello, my baby. Hello, my dog. Uh, well, the book I picked, uh, this is awesome. So the book I picked is The Interloper by Antoine Wilson, which is a fantastic book. Um, but 
the story about this book that I have is even better than the book itself. So I, uh, I only knew Antoine slightly, and um, I was asked to review his book for a newspaper. And so I started reading it, and I got 21 pages in, and I came across the following lines. Um, let's see here. Where are we? Her name was Patricia Stocking, Patty. P.S. Like the Palm Springs bumper sticker. P.S. I love you. And the license plate. I saw once on Palm Canyon Drive. P.S. I hate you. We would love or hate each other. My license plate, when I was a 17-year-old boy living in Palm Springs, was P.S. I hate you. <gasps> and so I'm looking at this, I'm like, what the fuck? And so I put down the book, and I'm like, I, I gotta find out if he just made this up, or you know, like how he came to this. So in the middle of the night, I'm reading this book and I email him like, hey, this is going to sound weird. Um, but, you know, we know each other slightly. Um, I've been asked to review your book. I just got to page 21. And I have to know, did you ever actually see this license plate, P.S. I hate you, or did I just, or did you just make it up? And he said, oh, he wrote me back. He's like, hey, you know, I just, I just, you know, used to see it constantly. We had a condo down in Palm Springs when I was a kid, and I'd come down, and I just saw this car everywhere I went with this PSI Hate You license plate. Oh, my that God. That is crazy. And I'm like, that was my car. And he's like, no, it's impossible. I was like, no, it was my car. And I happened to be going to my sister's house, and my sister still had the license plate, uh, because we it had been her car first, and then my car, and for some reason she had a license plate. So I took a picture of it, and sent it to him he's like oh my god this is crazy you know how can, this is impossible this has happened he's like well you know what it's a good thing you never um saw me or else this would be really weird and i was like well what was your license plate and he's like oh yeah if you'd seen my license plate you'd remember it it was thespian <laughs> and i said you drove a gold car you had horned rim <laughs> glasses and you had sort of longish hair like a bob almost he's oh like, my god he's like why Why do you know that? How do you know that? I was like, because every time you saw me, I saw you. <laughs> For years, we saw each other. Like, in Palm Springs and then in L.A. I was like, so you're connected by personalized license yes! plates? <laughs> He's like, this is... So you sound like an advertisement for the personalized uh, license really plate right now. <laughs> we really do. We really do. I was, and then I called my sister, because I was back home by the time I found out about thespian, and she's like, oh my god, remember? We didn't know what thespian meant, and we thought it maybe meant, like, lesbian, and so that became our code word for when we saw someone who we thought was a lesbian, we called him a thespian, I was like, oh, that's right. Antoine Wilson was also responsible for our latent teenage homophobia. That's fantastic. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> but isn't that bizarre? That's I mean, totally and then we end up, you know... He was teaching UCLA, and I was teaching UCLA. We were just down the hall from one another when we were teaching these classes. Uh, and we're friends now. Um, but, like, it it really was one of those, whoa, moments for yeah, me. Yeah, it's like a weird time travel moment. Yeah. For you to be reading a fictional book about Palm Springs and then have it relate to you personally from when you were a teenager. Like, that. So cool. Well, it's not even a book about Palm Springs. It's just that in that moment, he remembers going to Palm Springs and seeing it. There's no other Palm Springs in the book at all. Really? Yeah. So it's it's a bizarre thing. And just one of those things that I think, you know, how many other people have that experience where you read a book and your own license plate? Who remembers their license plate numbers? But that's why having a personal license plate that said, P.S. I hate you, um, was I also important. Like, yeah, what? It reveals about you. 
you had this dickhead license plate. <laughs> I, I, I remember being like 14 and planning my personalized license plate, like looking at cars and yeah, because this is something that in California, hearing that story, Todd, it totally rem- reminded me. Like when I was a kid, I knew what car everybody drove mm-hmm. in my town. You know, like we knew our friends by their parents' cars. So, like, you would know who, because you would see who would get picked up from school or whatever. So, by the time, you know, before you're 16, that's how you know who's where is based on what cars you see in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew everybody. And that's so weird to me now. Like, I, you know, I live in a city. I would never keep track of cars. And also, just, you know, care less about cars as you get older, maybe. Or at least I do. Um, but I definitely remember being, like, 14 or 15 and being like, oh, I know exactly what personalized license plate I'm going to get. And then by the time I was 16, I just realized I didn't well, give a shit. And I remember after I had PS I Hate You, I thought, oh, I know what my next personalized plate's going to be. Like, I had a whole series of them in my head. And my next one was going to be Hate Walkin'. <laughs> so cool. But, so, so cool. I had, it, I had it spelled out and everything. And I was like, this is going to be awesome. And then, H-T-E-W-L-A-N-H-8-W-A-K-I-N was what it was going to be. And then my friend Jim was like, that's hate whacking. I was like, oh, that is hate whacking, isn't it? He's like, and you clearly don't hate whacking. And if you have that license plate, you don't want people to think you hate whacking because that's all you're going to be doing because no one's going to want to be seen with you. And I was like, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of feel like I kind of feel like a personalized license plate has gone the way of the mullet. No, I see them. Well, I think it it belongs to a certain subset of humans. So here in the desert, well, it's the way of the mullet, right? I see it on it, it's on like, old it's like, rich people's cars. It can cars be cool in an ironic way. I it don't know. Be like, <laughs> it no. could be just very uncool in a you know, but it's definitely not cool the way it was in the eighties or the seventies. Like where it's acceptable. My I mom think it seems like it would be cool and then, you know, six months it's later horrible. you're embarrassed. My mom, when she had a column in the uh Contra Costa Times in Northern California and then later in the desert, actually had a feature called Pass and Plates where she would talk about the uh personalized license plates she saw. Um, oh yeah, it was like a thing, and like there was she had of, uh, she a lot of good material to cover. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of column inches covered there. She and then she had two friends. Yeah. <laughs> this was a real column and a real. It newspaper. was it was at the bottom of her column about you know society or whatever passing plates. Oh, and she had a series of bad personalized license plates. I think her last one was byline because she was a writer. So byline. That is not the worst. I th- thespian's pretty bad. Th- thes- thespian's pretty bad. It was a bad license plate that he <laughs> had. License plates died at the exact same time that AOL chat handles <laughs> appeared. That's the same thing. And now we have Twitter handles. So, so you get a few more characters and endless possibilities. That is genius. <laughs> oh my god. Julia, you could get a book deal from that. That is <laughs> that is a study that needs to be done. A simple observation? Yes. Yes. It's You're a very good one, though. It's where that culture right? went. Yeah. 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 I don't have my Prodigy account anymore, so I'm just going to put my name on my car. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and children of all ages to Literary Disco. We are going to talk today about uh, a fantastic novel, or at least a book I thought was fantastic. We'll find out about what Julian Ryder have to say about it. 
Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain. Um, I have to admit that the first time I heard about this book, Ben Fountain was picking up an award for it. Um, He won the LA Times Book Prize for Fiction last year um, for this book. And uh, this is actually the second book that we've read that won an LA Times Book Prize last year. We also read the first fiction winner, Seating Arrangements. Um, We read that a couple months ago um, Mm. and, uh, and both liked and disliked it. So... We'll see what we think about Ben Fountain's book. Um, ben Fountain is uh, has written two books. He's written Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk and also a collection of short stories, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara. Um, he's been in the O. Henry Prize stories uh, a couple times. He's won the Pushcart Prize. Uh, he won the National Book Critics Award for Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Um, and this book was uh, a finalist for the National Book Award as well. Wow. Um, Jesus, he's been yeah. cleaning up on this book. He was a Whiting Award winner in 2007, which is an award that's given to someone who has a book in progress, generally speaking. Um, and he also won the Pen, the Hemingway Foundation Pen Award for Brief Encounters with Trey Guevara. So he's written two books. Um, they've each received quite a lot of praise. Before that, he was a lawyer up until 1988. Um, so he's... Two novels into a career, but he had a separate one before that, which is, um, I think, an, always an interesting thing. So anyway, uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk is not what I thought it was. When I heard the book talked about at the LA Times Festival Books, I thought it was about an old man coming back to a high school football game and thinking about his life as he walked across the field. That is not what the book <laughs> I is about. Like, I, all I could think was baseball, and then I, I couldn't get my head around first war and then football. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really a book about the war in Iraq um, and about fighting and about home and about religion and about patriotism and about football and um, about loss and for a brief moment, it's also about dry humping, and I think it's the first book we've read in quite some time that has a prolonged dry humping scene in it. I can't think of another one that does. Uh, flowers in the Attic. Well, that was more of a dry hump okay, into a guys. rape. <laughs> this at least was consensual. Well, let's give a let's give a plot summary of, of Billy Lynn's. So it's really it, the whole novel, except for one section in the middle, takes place in the course of a football game. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much, uh, as these, this Bravo company, which is uh, uh, eight soldiers that survived um, a huge assault on, um, in Iraq. They, they had this big firefight that was captured on videotape. So they become national heroes back in the United States because everybody saw this tape. Is it 2004? It's 2004. So it takes place during the, the Thanksgiving football game that the Dallas Cowboys always play. It follows Billy Lynn. He's our primary when he's not there, our narrator, but we're we're in his, we're with him most of the time. The these soldiers get taken from room to room, from rich person to powerful Texan to uh, movie producer to cheerleader, uh, Beyonce to cheerleaders. You know, and everybody wants to talk to them as returning heroes because they've had this incredibly famous video of them kicking ass in Iraq, and Billy has lost in that battle he lost his closest friend a character named shroom who was not only a friend but kind of a mentor teacher figure for him because he was a big reader and into philosophy and so billy's having this little bit of a crisis <laughs> a little bit while... <laughs> a little bit of a crisis <laughs> because they're about they're, they're being paraded as part of a tour of the u.s which is culminating in this halftime show and then they're going back to iraq for another 11 months it's about the way america uh celebrates and treats soldiers and and how that becomes a show but then also 
it's it's an incredibly complicated issue and i feel like this book gets to the heart of it by placing billy who's not like he's not the smartest character in the world but he's also not a complete um unthinking grunt he's like in between in this moment he's really he's a teenager he's only 19 and he's really he's coming aware of the lies that he's you know bought into his entire life and whether he you know, really wants to be a part of this war anymore, um, and what that means, and what that means to his relationship to his fellow soldiers, and um, to his country, and how America treats his and, soldiers. And we should, we should um, note how he ended up being yes. in the army. So, what happens to Billy Lynn is that his sister, who he cares for very much, and where there is a very strange sexual undercurrent between the two of them, and we can get to that a little bit later, um, his sister has a bad boyfriend. Um, they break up. Billy goes and destroys his car with a crowbar and then chases this guy around with a crowbar, um, basically threatening to kill him, but not really because he's laughing so hard that he, you know, he wouldn't know what to do if he got to him. But he does this huge outsized event, and um, basically he's told either go to jail or join the army, and so he picks the army and then is, then is promptly shipped off to, um, to Iraq. Um, so it's not like he was one of those guys who 9-11 happened and he was, you know, gung-ho, let's go kill the ragheads, um, yeah. which is, you know, a, a lot of what you see in, in the book is that, that very sentiment. Um, and he, so it, it's, it's a strange thing because his sister has this weight of, you did this thing for me. And, oh, and we should note, his sister had been in a terrible car accident and her boyfriend broke up with her while she was in the hospital undergoing her fiance, you know, her fiance 37 plastic surgeries or what have you. So he, the guy deserved a beating. <laughs> um, but so his sister carries this weight of, oh, my God, if you hadn't done this to get back at my boyfriend, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be in this situation. And she's trying to get him to basically go AWOL, to not go back to Iraq after this victory tour that, that they're on. And that's an undercurrent that runs through the book as well. Um, so there's there's the weight of that. There's the weight of the death of his friends in this this battle that Fox News covered live on television. Um, and then there's the the sort of existential angst of a 19 year old boy who's a virgin, who falls in love with every girl that he comes across, um, including, including his own sister. It's it's a very it's it's I think it's <laughs> it's actually starkly true in that regard. Yeah. Um, I think it's starkly true in most regards. But it, you know, it, it's not just about war. It's not just about peace. It's not just about people or families. And there's a big undercurrent about um, the relationship he has with his father. Um, but it, it, it's also about sort of American value systems, conservative versus liberal values. The the fact that the the most profound and interesting warrior as part of Bravo Company is this guy named Dime, who is you know a bleeding heart liberal basically, and who who can't stand this sort of hero worship that that is coming to him it's it's a very complex and strange yeah. book in the sense that it's it i think it's closest um cousins would be something like catch 22 or even the things they carried in a way um i would say a lot of the things they carried more so than catch 22 because catch 22 was you know so it was cynical but so much of it was for the sake of humor and this book has funny moments but 
it feels way more realistic than mm-hmm. Catch Twenty Two. You know, Catch Twenty Two is 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 a bunch of logic jokes in a way. It's hard to pinpoint what's actually happening yeah. in reality um, because of the way it's written. Whereas this book just it's so nuanced in its character choices. You know, like his relationship to Dime that you mentioned is is essential because he looks up to Dime, who's a sergeant, but. Dime doesn't give a crap about this victory tour. He's clearly more cynical than Billy and anybody else. He's older. He has a little bit more experience. But, you know, he can't... And none of them are in a position to really criticize the war because they're, right. they're soldiers. And they recognize their position as soldiers and their loyalties to each other, their loyalty to each other and to their country. And it's just a weird position that they find themselves in. I loved it. I loved... You know, it seems heavy-handed um, when, you, when you really think about it, but... You know, just if you're going to cover the Bush years in the Iraq War to take like worse heroes and a football game and like it, there's oh, a lot yeah. of big bold mm-hmm. choices that he made as an author, but I have to he pulled it off because I believe every one of these people. Like I really believe these characters. They don't. No, no one rings false. And then he to also me. manages in the same process to skewer. So he skewers a war. He skewers the American political system. He skewers sports in football. And the, mm-hmm. the, the gladiator mentality of football. Um, and then he also manages to completely and accurately skewer the machinations of Hollywood as well. All in the yeah. course yeah. of a 300-page novel that takes place in seven hours of one guy's life, basically. That's true. Um, which is extraordinarily deft. And I think he could have very easily slid into cliché in any of those realms, and he doesn't. Um, his portrayal of the... He gets close. I I totally agree. I I really, really love this book. This was a one-sitter for me. Um, It was really exciting in that regard. I was... I loved just going along in real time with this guy. And, side note, it really felt like real time. Mm -hmm. It really felt like you were reading about every minute for about a minute. Um, Very rarely did it slow down or speed up too much. But, um, anyway... Um, and I can only really think of two other books that do that, which is Mrs. Dalloway and uh, Next by James Hines. I was reminded a lot of Next reading this book. Very similar narrative styles. The one moment that I thought um, it brushed into unreality, and this is very hypocritical of us to say, but I'm, I get annoyed when the way that we signify that someone is smart is that they read books. And it happened three times. Mm. It happened with Dime. It happened with the dead guy. And then, and those I, I bought, I was, I was cool with. But um, then, like, we're, Billy is, he's great. I love him. But he's, you know, he's working at his shit on a regular intelligence level. He has trouble coming up with exactly what he wants to say a lot of the time. He feels very awkward. And then somebody's like, what books do you like? And he names nine books that are all amazing books <laughs> <laughs> in about one second. Um, all these Hunter S. Thompson books and Cat's Yeah, but he Cradle says, but he says those are the books that Shroom told Had him, him read. to read. Yeah. So it's like clearly still. it's a new phase in his life where he's still excited about discovering Okay, I, I will buy it. But it just seemed like one of those moments of like, and now we will reveal to you this character is deep and intelligent by having him name um, a whole bunch of books. When I feel like I was already there with him. What are you saying? Sure. That reading books doesn't make you deep and intelligent? <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. Well, I'm saying that's what I we do. <laughs> I'm saying it's kind of what would... we're doing here today. <laughs> yeah, wow, Julia. All right. 
I'm just saying it doesn't. I don't need names of books to be dropped to believe in the character's intelligence. It, it's kind of a narrative shortcut in a way because here we have this 19 year old kid who's um, at war and who comes from a small town in Texas, and we don't expect him, maybe as readers of literary fiction, to be as um, intensely smart and interesting as as the rest of us for some reason because we are elitists. And mm-hmm. the fact that he is having this sort of existential crisis right now. You'd, you'd believe it anyway because he's at war and he's killing people. But he's having this existential crisis and it's married to all of a sudden reading a bunch of books also. So he mm-hmm. very clearly says at certain points that he doesn't understand things that people are saying to him and he has to ask for clarification. But then he, he, he's read these, you know, these nine touchstone books and he's beginning to ask the questions that I think you naturally ask when you've been exposed to literature, you start to have that, that sense of empathy because there's, there's still a thing with Billy though, where, you know, he's still a rube. He's still concerned about things being gay, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. will people think he's gay or is this gay or what have you, which I think is also really accurate to how 19 yes, year olds talk and think. Sure. Um, I actually, Julia, that scene struck me as, as, as slightly tongue in cheek or, or satirical in the sense that it was, it, 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 it was uh, what the journalists wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Do you know okay. what I mean? Like, sure. he was spouting yeah. a lot of stuff, but what they want to hear, what the literary elite, essentially, wants to hear is that, oh, a soldier who reads, and then they want, you know, and of course they, their follow-up questions were all about Hunter S. Thompson, because that's a journalist. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I felt like it was just another group of people using the soldier and filling him with whatever identity they want. Because that's so much what the book is sure. about, is, is, is Billy's sense uh like he's losing his sense of self because he has to go on this tour and be so many different things to so many other people that he doesn't even know like he's just there to say lines basically and to to deliver you know to be a prop in other people's narratives of this war and you know the the journalist wanting him to write a book you know that's what they're keep hounding Mm -hmm. you should write a book about your experience you could get this and here's a publishing contract and da 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 and it's just like all the business people that he keeps meeting they're like you could make a lot of money off of this you could go into politics like every sphere that he enters you know he kind of is invited into a club based on the fact that he survived you know this horrific experience that he's still trying to process one of my favorite um moments was well there was a lot but um he meets some I forget which one. I think it's just when he's hobnobbing with the regular business guys um, up in the private booth. But he he asks the guy basic business questions, and the guy starts to tell him things, and he gets excited because he's being imbued with new knowledge that might enhance his life further on. But all this businessman wants to talk about is the war. Mm-hmm. And so Billy walks away with nothing, like given nothing to make his life better. I just thought that was so well done. And very sad. And you know what Ben Fountain does that's so cool is so in these moments where Billy is talking to someone and he sort of begins to disassociate, what Ben Fountain does is he basically turns the page into a word soup where all you see are just little bits of words. And 9-11, for instance, becomes uh, it's becomes phonetic. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes yeah. Nina Leva, basically. And it's just you you begin to understand how Billy is processing all of the stuff that's being thrown at him, and it just becomes a whirl past him. And it's a really cool narrative device that, or craft device, basically, that Ben Fountain uses to, to get that across. You know what I was also curious about, and because I know you guys don't follow sports as much as I do, um, is, so the owner of the Dallas Cowboys is a guy named Jerry Jones. He's mm-hmm. uh, portrayed as a guy named Norm in, uh, in this book. 
Did you guys think that guy was a cliche, or did he feel like a real person? Because for me, as a, a person who watches the NFL religiously, his portrayal of this guy, who is Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, is so stunningly accurate to every portrayal of Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones portrays himself as that really? it was, it was like, oh my God, how's Jerry Jones not suing him for something? Um, I mean, it was just, I, I thought it was really cool, but I, I don't know if you guys just thought it was caricature. I, it didn't strike me as a caricature. I mean, he struck me as someone rather distant from the actual action or any human connection. And um, there was, there's a line, I'm sorry, I just want to keep going back to the book because I thought the writing was so good. But anyway, yeah, I found that believable. I thought if anyone was a caricature, I don't, I don't think anyone was a caricature, but Billy is absolutely a figure that we know, a young, virginal, innocent soldier contemplating his life. But yeah, the, all the portrayals of the, the Hollywood guys, the rich people, those all rung true to me as someone who deals with a lot of don- donors and sponsors um, in, in my day-to-day life. I just love this sentence. Um, she smiles, but it's purely social, gives nothing of herself, and Billy decides she's either medicated or ruthlessly conserving energy. <laughs> I have seen that smile and probably given it Hundreds of times. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the the neat thing about this is that, well, I mean, there's lots of neat things, but that Billy is obsessed with getting to meet the cheerleaders and also getting to meet Beyonce. So Beyonce, this actually happened. Beyonce played <laughs> the halftime of the 2004 Dallas Cowboys Thanksgiving game. And she came out and she did it with all these soldiers. And so Billy is really dedicated to seeing her and, and meeting this, these Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. And he actually makes a connection with one Dallas Cowboy cheerleader, which ends with a, a wonderful scene. I have to say, just this woman seems like she's the most vapid, and maybe she is, piece of, uh, you know, proselytizing God woman. And then all of a sudden, they go behind like a riser and dry hump for 20 seconds until she comes. <laughs> and then she walks off. And it's it's just this moment of... Is it fantasy? Is it true? You know, and it, it's the sort of thing that I think, you know, probably happens sometimes. People dry hump uh, behind things. Um, but it's, it, it is the satisfaction of Billy's fantasy, and it, is, it sends him onto this narrow-focused idea that he and this woman are going to have a long-term relationship, that, that she's his girlfriend. And it's, it, I think it's the most true part of Billy is this, this inability for him to recognize things are fleeting that some things just are in the moment but aren't aren't persistent and perhaps that's you know that's what you have to do when people are dying all around you is hope that whatever you're seeing or experience doesn't last forever and he's he's incapable of doing that just yet well and i love that she is a born again christian and is you know trying to save him and that's their real connection is that She's trying to save a hot soldier while also <laughs> developing a little fling with him of whatever sort. Um, but they do, I mean, I thought it was going to, I don't want to give anything away, but I thought their interaction was going to end under the bleachers, and it mm-hmm. does not. So that's inter- an interesting choice, too. Like, I, I feel like Ben Fountain really loves his characters and wants to give them almost a little more than they deserve in this um, narrative. If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think a few things worked out that I'm, well, worked out however much you can in a book that only exists in the present tense, but worked out in a way that I that surprised me. I thought it was going to be a more realist book 
than it was. But I, it's okay. Billy deserves what he gets. Well, I think really, um, the whole point of this book is not really the plot. You know, no. I feel like they he created this kind of romance plot, um, which is nice. I mean, I wanted to know what was going to happen next. That kept me going. But really, to me, this is a book where Billy is is a he's a he's a, a fresh cultural critic. Do you know what I mean? Like he's he's got new eyes because of the experience he's had. And he's a he's a he's an ultimate American in the sense that he's young, he's always sort of bought into a, a, an average American life. He comes from a conservative family. Um, his dad was a conservative talk show host, actually a radio guy. And um, he, th- there's this line on page one twenty one where it's life in the army has been a crash course in the scale of the world, which is such that he finds himself in a constant state of wonder as to how things come to be. And then earlier, he also has this line, you know, either Billy's fucked or America is. <laughs> and I feel like that that conflict, you know, like that's what this book is about. Is about Billy sitting there and for the first time, he's like able to see a football game for what a football game actually is. Or maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, maybe he's now uh, just so strung out and damaged from this, P- you know, PTSD essentially that he's being cynical and, and and not enjoying the moment for what it is. And I think that tension and the fact that it doesn't really settle one way or the other is what makes this book so exciting. Because I think as, you know, for me, like as a liberal, non-sports, non-military person, like I read a lot of his criticism and it's very easy for me to be like, well, yeah, these are myths that you're now seeing through, like, you know, Star Spangled Banner and all, you know, all the sort of pageantry that he's able to now see through and question. To me, it seems a little like, well, that's obvious. But what's not so obvious to someone like me reading this book is how scary it would be to, to actually walk away from your fellow soldiers or how important it is to, you know, I, I just, it, it, it's a great book because it kind of works both in both directions. And that's because the character of Billy is entirely believable and his criticism feels fresh and new, you know, as opposed to like reading like a David Foster Wallace essay on a football game or, you know, the pageantry of the military, there's a character that's really embedded and that is still kind of conflicted about it. And that's way more compelling to me. I I felt like um, when I was reading this, I felt like the style was David Foster Wallace meets um, Juno Diaz. Yes. Like the voice plus the complexity of of the kaleidoscopic um, view of all perspectives. I just, I couldn't get the, those two ideas out of my head. Can I read a passage that I really liked? That's one of the central passages of the book. Yes. Um, Okay. Don't be scared, Shroom said, because you're going to be scared. So when you start to get scared, don't be scared. Billy has thought about this a lot, not just the Zen teaser of it, but what exactly does it mean to be scared out of your mind? Shroom, again, fear is the mother of all emotion. Before love, hate, spite, grief, rage, and all the rest, there was fear, and fear gave birth to them all. And as every combat soldier knows, there are as many incarnations and species of fear as the Eskimo language has words for snow. And... It's a very long passage, so I'll stop there. But it comes after that, like, whole long family scene, um, which has no, you know, deep analysis in it. It's just this great, well-paced memory of his last day with his family, followed up by these, like, huge impact theoretical ideas like that. And that's where I think this book is really good, is it ties the scenic, um, the scenic scenes, that's horrible, it ties the very active scenes to the very meditative passages. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it's got both at the same time, and they're really well paced out. I, it seems like he took a long time editing this book. You know what? That- you, there was something that I wanted to point out, too, um, which is there is a real callback to the things they carried in here. Mm-hmm. And if you've not read the things they carried, stop listening to this. Go and at least read the story, the things they carried, and then, and then come back and listen to this. But there's a moment where they, uh, Billy has been in the locker room, and he's been meeting the players, and the players are you know, basically asking him questions about you know, what it's like to go to war. And what guns he used. Yeah, what guns he used. So, like, and then, it's like violence porn for them. And then Billy and Dime go and into the room of the, um, the guy who is in charge of all the gear for the Cowboys. And mm. Total he, things they carried list He moment. lists all the stuff that the equipment <laughs> manager carries. And, yeah. and you begin to understand the absurdity of, okay, this is what... You know, actual warriors carry these guns and all these things. And then there's um, chewing gum. We provide five flavors for the guys. You're looking at 2,500 count boxes right there. Velcro strips and tags here to keep your gear snug and tight. He goes on and on and on. Cartons of powdered Gatorade. Thermal underwear. Mittens. Muffs. Chemical hand warmers. Cold weather cream. Thermal socks. Heating units. Just this huge, like, three pages of lists of stuff that the football team has. Which, you know, is just to run around and catch a ball. Whereas this guy's been at war and he doesn't have any of this sh- stuff, you know, he has nothing like this, and it's it's a it's a clear, I think, compare contrast to what we know about about sure. war stories. And I love that dime, uh, the dime, the sergeant character. That's whose autograph he decides to get right. on his football because they have footballs that they're getting signed by the players. But dime gets this guy Ennis, the manager of the team, to sign it because it feels like he's the real guy that makes this team happen. Right. In the same way that. In the military, you you know you have the people on the victory tour, but you still have the guys in the trenches actually fighting and dying for your country. I loved that comparison. I thought that was great. And uh, and Ben Fountain says only America could take such a product intensive sport and grow it into the civic necessity it is today. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a it's a great line. And I mean, and I'm just as guilty of this. You know, I'm I'm addicted to the NFL, but like I there's just I don't know if any of you if either of you saw it. But there's this incredible documentary recently on Frontline um, about how the injuries that football players are sustaining are like the similar injuries that people in war are, these traumatic brain injuries from the concussive blows that they are sustaining. Um, Now, of course, these guys are getting paid millions of dollars versus these grunts who are getting $15,000 a year to get shot at. Um, So it's, I mean, I think in America, we we have a, um, a unique and, and probably distasteful uh, analogy of our sports heroes being soldiers and warriors when they're not they're 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 chasing balls guys getting shot at are soldiers and warriors you know the, one person does it they're, they're both at this point in, in time doing it by choice you, you choose to sign up for the military but in the nfl you're you know the the consequence ends at the 60 minute mark when that game is over these guys are coming back and they're all fucked up um you know, yeah, the football players have all the same injuries, right. except death. Except death. <laughs> exactly. It's a pretty big uh, one to leave out there. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of this, I mean, so much of what I kept coming back to in this book is because there's all these different spheres of American life that he's encountering and, and military life. But so much of it fundamentally came down to class to me. You know, like mm-hmm. this, he's constantly learning his class like he's trying to figure out where he fits in this world and his parents have all these medical this medical debt because of his father's stroke and his sister's car accident and you get the sense that he grew up kind of lower middle class um 
but never quite aware of his position in the world because he had never been around rich people. And so I love that he has this moment where he, while he's visiting his family, uh, the the local rich guy, like the richest guy in his town, comes to visit him and offer his support and offer him a job when he comes back. And Billy Lynn, you know, when he gets to the football game and he meets real rich people like billionaires, you know, he, he has this kind of moment. Um, and it goes back to the quote that I read earlier about the sense of scale that his life has shifted mm-hmm. through. Now he's suddenly aware that the richest guy in his hometown doesn't hold a candle to these rich right. people at this football game. And like that expansion of the world and like him trying to figure out how he fits in it. I mean that is just it's compelling stuff and mm-hmm. it's really accurate. You you I don't know. I I can't say enough about this book. I kind of want to read it again, which is crazy cuz I just finished it this morning. <laughs> but it's really hey, dense and yet it moves quickly. Ever. It's dense and moves quickly. I mean that's a yeah. that's the hallmark of a perfect novel to me. And it reads in real time like Julia said earlier. So I I did the same thing. I read this in one night basically and mm-hmm. you know, I, I think you miss a lot because it it does speed through and it's interesting and funny and and sad and all those things at one time, but there's a, a deeper, important message about, you know, all sides of the political spectrum in America and just what it means to to stand in harm's way and, and, and how other people perceive you for doing that too. I think it I think it is really some of the best writing I've read about soldiers from this current war we're in. Though I suspect that, you know, in the next ten years we're gonna get a lot of books by people who have served and are only now coming to grips with what they've experienced. I mean, there's already been a, a huge spate of books in the last, you know, 10 years from, from folks, but I, I, this I, is a really cool book to read in terms of like when it's set to, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated mm-hmm. right now by 2003 to 2008 ish. Like it's just such a clear period, you know, the, the later Bush years essentially. Ugh. Um, cause God. I just saw a play, a friend of mine is in a play. Um, it's a new play called the pain and the itch. Uh, I'll have to look up who the author is, but, um, and it's set in 2005 and there's lots of the same references that this book makes, you know, nine 11 terrorism. And, and there's that whole period was about people living outsized and, 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 and intentionally doing so like we're, you know, this is good for our country to make as much money as possible and to, you know, all that like bigger is better and, and we got to stand up for something that permeates this entire book and that entire period is, it's interesting well, to see now. Yeah, not only is there the things they carried reference, but there is what I believe to be a Huckleberry Finn reference as well, um, which is um, a scholarly reference, not there's no Huck and no Jim in this book, but um there, in the middle of Huck Finn, there's a character who gives a long monologue about violence, and mm-hmm. that's essentially Mark Twain writing an essay in the middle of Huck Finn. And the exact same thing happens in this book through the voice of Norm, which is amazing. And he says, <laughs> I just, when I realized what was happening, I love this so much. Um, so this is Norm, the like uber, uber conservative saying, To all those who argue this war is a mistake, I'd love to point out that we've removed from power one of history's most ruthless and belligerent tyrants, a man who cold-bloodedly murdered thousands of his own people, who built palaces for his personal pleasure while schools decayed and his country's health care system collapsed, who maintained one of the world's most expensive armies while he allowed his nation's infrastructure to crumble, who channeled resources to his cronies and political allies, allowing them to siphon off much of the country's wealth for their own personal gain. Mm. So I would ask those who oppose the war... Would the world be a better place today with Saddam Hussein in power? Um, and it's so obviously about both 
you know, both leaders. And mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, Mark Twain, there you are. You know, it's the exact, it's such a similar passage. You know what is also really cool? Well, not, well, cool is perhaps the word, is that Ben Fountain is able to pull off using actual people that we know in fiction and make them into something else. So there's Norm, who's basically Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys, but Dick Cheney shows up in here, Beyonce is in here, and they are these huge, George Bush is in there, they're these huge cultural figures, and he's able to use them as both symbols and actual moving parts in a story, and I think that's really hard because I think it can also make something feel anachronistic, Um, Mm -hmm. and it's already been 10 years since the, the events of this story happened, basically. Um, but it doesn't. It, it feels, I think he does it in a really vibrant, interesting way because he's just using things that they would actually say and do. You know, everything that yeah. the Norm character says is everything that Jerry Jones said at the time. Everything Dick Cheney says and does, you know, is everything Dick Cheney would have said and done. And clearly Beyonce actually did, you know, sing and dance to Soldier. And I'm dancing right now. You guys can't see it. I got my arms up. I'm waving them like, like I just terrible. don't care. You don't want to see it. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that is a challenging bit of writing because people already know who these characters are. You know, people bring in to these people their own biases, their love, their their hate, whatever. If you read this book and you are a big fan of um, Dick Cheney, you're probably not going to appreciate his, uh, his arrival in the book and how they treat him. Um, but I think that's the challenge of telling the truth about that time, that people had very strong opinions about that man, and I think they still do. And nothing is, um, nothing rings more true than the fact that no matter what you do, you still can't talk to Beyonce. Or, she or discern the ruler of the universe. Or discern who the other two were in Destiny's Child. <laughs> I have no idea who those other two women were. So, you know what's the, the most devastating moment in this whole book? Is when they kick the soldiers out of the VIP party. So, mm-hmm. basically, a Mexican drug cartel leader yeah. can come in. <laughs> Do you guys remember this yes. moment? Yeah. Like, it, it, it's really well placed, but it's. It, the, so, Norm, the, 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 you know, invites them up to their the inner office. Or what is that? Like, the inner luxury sanctum suite. of the, yeah. the luxury suite where it's, like, the owner's box or whatever. And they're having a huge party, and the, all the soldiers are there, and it's there's a series of these party scenes throughout the book where you're in Billy's head as he deals with the different rich people and the conversations and how they treat soldiers, and it's very interesting. So it's one of those great scenes, and then it ends with them saying, okay, well, sorry, guys, you have to leave now. We need to make room for some other people. It's a Mexican guy. He's a, you know, an official from Mexico. It's probably drug war money, but we, we gotta let him in. And you're like, wait a minute. So you're replacing our American soldiers who almost died for this country. You've, you've given them their five minutes of fame or whatever. Now you're gonna push them out. So somebody who's profited from drug war money it can come in with all of his security. It, it was brilliant. It's like so on the nose of like, what's important here? Who makes the money? How do you know who gets who gets who gets away with it? Always is you know the rich people like Norman his drug cartel. Like, oh, it's so fascinating to me. You, you know the other brilliant thing. I mean, I, I love the book. I think the whole thing is brilliant. It's hard sometimes to talk about a book you love because yeah. you just want to say everything is great. But here here's my final big thought about it: is that the thing that gets these guys to America, this battle that they fight. 
I kept expecting that we were going to have a flashback and we'd see that full scene. We never actually see this battle. We get yeah. hazy details about some of the things that happened, but we never see it because we don't need to because we watched all those things on CNN when they happened. And it's it's a great thing because we we whatever he has whatever those soldiers experienced if Ben Fountain had tried to write that scene, it would not be as authentic as what we've already seen ourselves on these news programs, I think. And I think that is that that depends on the reader to fill in those blank spaces, and I love that. I think that's a, a yeah. bold decision on his part. All right. Well, that was a great book. It was a great book. That was Ooh. Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain, and it's uh, it's out in paperback now. You should all go get a copy. That's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks as we tackle the giant of American poetry, Robert Frost. By finding the individual poems on the internet, we'll rebuild his classic collection, New Hampshire. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. And check out our Goodreads page. Thanks for listening.